welcome to episode 13 of the Fire Safety Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated fire industry. My name's Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Fire Safety Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the Fire Safety event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 27th, 28th and 29th of April 2021. To register for the show, visit www.firesafetyevent.com. As always, I'm joined on the Fire Safety Matters podcast by my colleague Mark Sennett, the CEO at Western Business Media. Hi, Mark. How are you? I'm great, thanks, Brian. How's everything with you? Very good, thanks, Mark. We're working on the October edition at the moment of the magazine. Yeah, very much looking forward to that. That'll be coming out in a couple of weeks' time. And it's almost like we practice this, Brian. Lovely segue to say how people can get the magazine. If you don't get a copy of Fire Safety Matters, what's wrong with you? You need to get a copy of the magazine. You get CPD points just for reading it. So if you want to get either a digital copy of the magazine or you want to get a physical hard copy of the magazine, just go to our website and you can register for free. It's www.fsmatters.com. But if you go to the website, there's a lot more than just the magazine that Brian does there. We've got daily breaking news, all the latest products and services in there as well. We've got a great array of columnists and feature articles. But also you can see our back archive of podcasts on there. But Probably one of the most interesting things, Brian, that we have there is is the CPD side. Like I said, you can get CPD for reading the magazine, but you can also get CPD for listening to our webinars. So if you click on the webinars tab, you can look through our back catalogue of webinars, or you can look ahead to our next webinar, which we're very excited to announce today. Our next webinar will once again be with Amanda Hope from Advanced and also Dr. Bob Doherty, the Institute of Fire Safety Managers. And we're going to be focusing on fire safety and educational premises. I think the title is Protecting Educational Premises from Fire. It's on the 25th of November at 10.30 in the morning. I'll be chairing that and we've got two excellent guests there in Amanda and Bob who are very, very knowledgeable. So click on the webinars tab there and you can listen to our back catalogue or register up for our upcoming on educational premises and fire safety on the 25th of November. So as always, we start off with the news and we kind of split it into two this week, haven't we, Brian? There's two topics that we really want to discuss, and we're going to run them concurrently. The first theme that we want to cover is actually the Building Safety Bill. So if you don't mind, Brian, I'm going to go first with a story you wrote in Rebury, if that's okay. So this story is headlined, The Devil's in the Detail and It's Missing states Reba in response to the Building Safety Bill. The Royal Institute of British Architects, which is Reba, has responded to the Housing, Communities and Local Government Committee's call for evidence as scrutiny of the draft Building Safety Bill begins. While Reba welcomes the intentions of the bill to provide a long overdue power to amend the building regulations, including requiring building safety duties to be carried out on all projects, the organisation harbours fundamental concerns about the delegation of duties and the scope of the future regulatory system. In its pre-legislative scrutiny of the bill, REBA urges the Housing, Communities and Local Government Committee to ensure that equal emphasis of the responsibilities placed on all duty holders, not just the principal designer and the principal contractor, in order to ensure that safety is embedded throughout a given project. Also, new statutory duties can be delivered regardless of the project's procurement route, including projects procured through design and build where the principal designer and principal contractor roles may be provided by the same organisation. Also they're looking at duty holders are in place for the gateway one planning application such that clients are required to appoint competent designers and principal designer. Also permitted development schemes pass through the gateway one regulatory submission so that key building safety design parameters are met at this stage and competent duty holders are in place. Also a reduction of the height threshold to 11 metres 
and a widening of the scope of the definition of high-risk buildings at the outset, such as the new regime, also applies to non-residential buildings, including hospitals, care homes, hospices, schools, hotels, hostels, guest houses and prisons during design and construction phases. And finally, the bill does not disrupt progress of the urgent review of approved document B to provide industry with clear, unambiguous guidance. So before I bring Brian into this, you know, it, it's great to see there's many, many associations and organisations now giving their feedback in, in the core for evidence, the Building Safety Bill. It really feels like things are starting to move. It's it's the really interesting part of it where the government's gone out for industry feedback and industry feedback is going to be very, very key. I think one of the interesting parts there, and I think this is a common theme felt by most associations in the sector is it's very key that this bill doesn't disrupt progress of the urgent review for approved document B. That is long overdue. God, it has been long, long, long overdue review of approved document B. We haven't got enough time to, to go through why that's the case, but I think that's a really important point to pull out. So Brian, um, before we move on to, to your next story, I think you've got something to add to this one. I do indeed, Mark. It's a quote from Jane Duncan. Jane is the chair of the RIBA's fire safety group, and she's explained the draft building safety bill provides mechanisms to facilitate future regulatory change, but over two years on from the Hackett review, it's still a long way from where it needs to be. Further, Jane has said, the devil's in the detail, and that's exactly what's missing here. We need clarification around the roles and responsibilities of duty holders, measures to ensure permitted development schemes are fire safe, and an appropriate definition of a high-risk building, because fire does not discriminate. The RIBA is urging the government to take note of its concerns and eagerly awaits clarification on secondary legislation. For many practitioners here, Mark, the longer this process continues, the longer people remain at risk. Yeah, absolutely. And while we're on a roll with the Building Safety Bill, you also wrote a really interesting article from the Business Sprinkler Alliance to do with this. So I wonder if you'd share that one with us, Brian. Yes, of course, Mark. Input to the pre-legislative scrutiny for the draft Building Safety Bill by the Parliamentary Select Committee closed on Monday the 14th of September, of course. According to the BSA, the document heralds long-awaited and welcome reforms that focuses on high-risk buildings in the wake of the Grenfell Tower tragedy. While it's a fundamental step on the journey towards improving the safety of the built environment, the Business Sprinkler Alliance hopes that the current scope of the legislation will cascade into buildings other than high-rise residential blocks over 18 metres and not be what it calls a wasted opportunity. The legislation will likely come into effect late next year, and proposes changes that will improve building and fire safety in all multi-occupancy high-rise residential buildings. The new rules will apply when these buildings are designed and constructed and then later occupied. It will see the recruitment of a chief inspector of buildings who will lead the newly created building safety regulator, itself set up within the health and safety executive to enforce a new and more rigorous building safety system. The building safety bill also promises, of course, to regulate construction materials and products. We also have some quotes here, Mark. An official statement from the Business Sprinkler Alliance reads, and I quote, The BSA welcomes the Building Safety Bill. It's long overdue, but we applaud the general intention to make the regulation clearer and more effective. The emphasis on accountability, enforcement powers, industry competence and critical products will go a long way towards addressing gaps that we've highlighted over time. The statement continues, however, while we recognise that high-rise residential buildings must be the first priority, this initiative to overhaul our national approach towards fire safety should also consider the outcomes we expect from buildings in the face of fire. Therefore, we also urge the government to use this opportunity to ensure that the scope of regulation and the regulator's ambit is widened towards situations which pose a significant risk to life or to firefighters' safety 
or where a fire would cause a loss of a community asset or impact the nation's economic well-being. The Business Sprinkler Alliance firmly believes that doing so will ensure the legislation delivers a built environment that's safe, sustainable and resilient in the face of fire. And of course, that's what we all want, Mark. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a couple of things I just want to quickly touch on here. One of the questions that I get asked and, and we hear a lot is, when is the building safety bill going to come in? And uh, as the BSA have said there, the best guess of it is it will come into force next year. It's obviously had its first reading. It's now had the feedback that we're talking about right now. And this will be a monumental change. I was actually talking to someone in the sector earlier today and, and their concern was that associations that are fire safety focused perhaps could have had a lot more input in this if they weren't as divided because it is a relatively divided sector you know you've always got the argument of active against passive against suppression etc and you, you you do see it's very difficult for all associations to be on the same page the whole time and, I, and the person I was speaking to his concern was that actually the fire safety sector you know the real influence in there could be left behind and it could come more from the building sector leading these so that's why it really is important that one cohesive focus and argument is put through on this. This is a massive piece of legislation. It comes through at the same time as the Fire Safety Bill, which we're making amendments to the Fire Safety Order, has had its first reading. And later on in this podcast, we're talking to Warren Spencer, and uh, we've actually going to be revealing to you about a digital conference that Warren and we are putting on to help guide everybody through this. But one last point on this Brian, when we're talking about a BSA focus on this, one thing again that always um, confuses me, and I don't want to sound like Nicola Sturgeon here, but she would say the Westminster government, as she calls it, has a lot different focus um, to do with legislation than the remaining parts of the United Kingdom. And it is strange to me that you can have one set of rules in Wales and Scotland, and, and the Welsh have been very, very forward focusing in terms of bringing in suppression systems into residential premises and that's trying to happen in Scotland now but there's no moves from you know the the English government to do so so we talk about Brian how there's different lockdown rules across the country well there's actually some different rules and regulations and standards just to do with fire safety across the United Kingdom and that to me just seems daft and you know I applaud the the Welsh governments and the Scottish governments for for making those legislative changes I just wish that we had one universal policy for that across the UK but you never know Brian could come in time so all good things come to those who wait it's not like we've been waiting decades for new legislation that's suddenly coming in is it so we move on to our first guest this week brian who have you got for us our first guest on episode 13 of the fire safety matters podcast is bob bantock bob is a fire safety specialist with 30 plus years of experience in the sector having served in the east sussex fire and rescue service in his present role bob is the heritage fire safety specialist for the national trust also advising on matters concerning emergency planning and crisis management. Bob's role covers England, Wales and Northern Ireland and focuses on fire safety related matters at all National Trust properties, including 350 historic houses. In our interview, Bob outlines the key challenges that National Trust premises face in relation to fire safety and also how its strategy has evolved to meet the demands of COVID-19. In addition, Bob turns his attentions towards the fire safety bill and the importance of continual learning for today's practitioners.
First of all, Bob, can you outline the key challenges that National Trust premises face in relation to fire safety issues? Okay, many and varied, as we say. So the Trust has got a very diverse portfolio of properties and structures. And we've got things like mansion properties that house collections. We've got castles, we've got lighthouses, we've got bridges, we've got tunnels, we've got stable blocks. We've got this whole range of properties within our portfolio. Now, not only that, but we've also got various types of sleeping accommodation, such as holiday cottages. And within that, we've got things called bothies and base camps. We've also got outdoors accommodation, such as camping and caravan sites, which are obviously proving sort of very popular at the moment. We've got a lot of land and coastline, which is easier to manage from a fire safety perspective because it's all outdoors. But for the built environment, I have to be aware of the slight differences across not just our range of properties that we've got, but across England, Wales and Northern Ireland, where they have their own sort of regulations. And sometimes that can be a little bit tricky to manage. Further to that, Bob, in what ways has the National Trust necessarily adapted its fire safety procedures to meet the demands of COVID-19? Okay, big changes. So when all this happened and we started to feel the effects sort of January, February, well, of course, come March when we're into lockdown, we furloughed about 80% of our staff, which was similar to other businesses across the UK. We had significant income shortfall of around £200 million, and, and that figures in the public domain. Most of our projects have been put on hold or stopped, and some of those projects were based on you know, conservation-type activities, and some of those works included fire precaution works and upgrades and lots of our buildings were actually shut so therefore we had let's say reduced life safety you know risk for staff and members of the public however we still had to think about property protection although we were in this sort of lockdown phase and we had to sort of think about protecting the buildings and obviously the collection now some buildings did have people still sleeping on site such as the donor families and some of our key representative staff and we had to develop something called essential tasks so whilst uh, covid obviously affected us and everybody we developed this essential tasks for properties during lockdown and they were the sort of must-dos that we had to complete in relation to fire security health and safety access environmental compliance and we had to achieve that of course with with less staff we also had a business continuity group that sat on a regular basis and they issued uh, daily briefings uh, for specific you know, requests within our properties. And lockdown was about making and keeping our buildings safe. And we worked out about a three month period, but keeping in mind the possibility that we would have to be opening at some sort of capacity in the future. So, yeah, COVID was a big effect for us. Given that each heritage property is unique in terms of both form and function, Bob, what's the best practice approach, do you feel, when it comes to fire risk assessments? Okay, well, there's two answers to this question. There was sort of a a pre-lockdown phase and now a pre-opening phase. So if we look at our pre-opening considerations following the lockdown, what we've asked properties to do, because we're opening up in a sort of a, a phased way, is to think about three key things. So, and this goes across any sort of building or property. Think about early warning, think about the means of escape and have an evacuation plan. So in its simplest form, we're asking managers to you know, think about those things to get yourselves opening in some shape or form. Now, coupled with pre-opening, it's about assessing the risk and looking at how that property is being used now, which is completely different to how it's being used when it was fully functioning. 
We've got reduced opening, we've got reduced staff, we've got less members of the public coming in. There's a reduction in what type of, say, showrooms are open for members of the public. But it's making sure that your fire risk assessment fits that process. And for us, of course, it's about life safety, which is the primary function, but also protecting the building itself and the collection. We also have to be aware of the listed status of a building, the conservation and curatorial requirements. And of course, you know, some intrusive type works would not be allowable anyway. It's also about thinking about different ways to do something different. There's different control measures. So let me give you an example. We may have some additional back of house fire precaution upgrade works that have been programmed in that may be not going ahead now because of the current sort of market, you know, lack of finance, lack of, you know, contractors or companies to even do the works. So what we'd have to look at is if you can't do those physical interventions is what additional controls can you put in place and things like reduced openings in terms of time tickets or one-way routes for members of the public less rooms open to the members of the public and it's easier to manage so it contributes to your life safety risk but yeah hugely different and difficult to us as a fire safety practitioner bob what are your thoughts on the proposed building safety bill and the parallel fire safety bill recently put forward by the government well i suppose the short answer to that is that both bills are good for the industry and if it's going to improve fire safety standards then of course it's welcome it's welcome across the whole built environment from my perspective as the heritage fire safety specialist for the trust it definitely needs an overhaul now the trust has commented on the latest consultation document uh, for the government the closing date for that is 12th of october and hopefully the wider sector gets the opportunity to make its comments so that it can feed back into both bills as it progresses through Parliament. Now, the difficulty that I've seen with both bills is that they've launched the consultation documents during a time when a significant proportion of the country has actually been on furlough and may not even be able to contribute to that document. But in summary, it's about strengthening the fire safety order and improving compliance for all regulated premises, including changes to the relevant you know, fire safety technical guides that we use on a daily basis to obviously help us with that process. So yeah, a welcome change, definitely. And lastly, Bob, why do you believe that ongoing learning and continuing professional development is so important for today's fire safety focused practitioners? Well, I suppose it goes without saying that if you're involved in life safety in any shape or form, you know, or any process that contributes to that, then you should have knowledge, skill, experience and qualifications so that you can demonstrate competence in your sort of area of expertise for the specific sector that you're actually working in. And for us, heritage may require a different skill set to maybe somebody that's doing you know, risk assessing or fire safety solutions on schools or hospitals. So we're in a very sort of bespoke, unique sector um, but CPD for everybody is something that uh, yeah definitely should be done on that annual basis because you've got to keep up with the skill set required for your specific industry and you can't do that unless you've attended you know events seminars or gained some additional qualifications.
Well, it's always great to hear from Bob Bantock. He's done a number of great seminars and webinars with us in the past, and he's been in the sector a long time and very knowledgeable. So it's great to hear from Bob. But if we return our focus now into the news, and like I said at the start of the podcast, actually, we've kind of split the news into two parts this week on, on two topics. So this part of the podcast news, we want to focus on Fire Door Safety Week. So a news story that Brian covered just last week, which was Fire Door Safety Week, which was the 25th of September to the 27th of September, turns out 60% of local authorities report delays on crucial fire door maintenance programme. So in launching Fire Door Safety Week, which as I said ran last week, the campaign organisers have shared the results of research into the state-of-the-art fire door maintenance, inspection and replacement programmes across local authority-owned and managed housing in the UK. Unfortunately, the results don't make for particularly pretty reading. 52% of local authorities responding to a Freedom of Information request have reported delays to plan fire door maintenance and replacement in the first half of 2020. This number rises to 60% when inspection delays are also brought into the equation. According to the data obtained from 147 local authorities that own and manage their housing stock, at least 26,318 fire doors were scheduled for maintenance or replacement between January and June, but 16,580 didn't see any progress. That means 63% of individual planned works were delayed until at least the second half of the year, thereby directly affecting a minimum of 9,954 individual properties. In addition to the delays to the maintenance and the replacement of the first half of the year, 31% of respondents stated that their fire door inspection programmes were delayed in turn impacting at least another 12,596 fire doors. hope everyone's keeping up with the stats here, there's quite a few. Not all responding local authorities provided reasons for the delays, but over half, 53% in fact, of those experiencing delays cited COVID-related restrictions, included limited property access and the availability of contractors due to social distancing guidelines. In a more positive finding though, several local authorities proactively mentioned that emergency repair works to fire doors continued throughout the lockdown period and in a determined bid to maintain the safety of Residents. Of the local authorities that experience delays, 65% intend to commence works by the end of the year. This signals that the majority of them do recognise the importance of properly fitted and maintained fire doors. However, 31% of local authorities stated that they're yet to determine a date for when these planned works can actually get finished off. The findings follow on from an open letter put together by the London Fire Brigade and distributed to all housing providers in the capital, urging them to put plans in place ahead of the new fire safety legislation coming into effect. And of course, we've discussed that earlier, the building safety bill and the fire safety bill. The letter strongly advises building owners to consider the risks of existing fire doors in their risk assessments, regardless of the height of the buildings involved. Okay, so before we bring Brian into this, my take on it is, is pretty simple. It's vital that these maintenance programs are carried out and completed unquestionable and fire door safety week is is an excellent campaign and i'll come back um a bit later to talk about fire door safety week but what i would say is it is unprecedented times i don't want to make excuses for why these repairs and replacement programs haven't been completed but i think we all know it's not exactly a normal year right now is it and covid restrictions have obviously got in the way i think i would be much more concerned brian by these figures if they just weren't being done but when you look at the stats people are intending to complete them they don't know the importance of completing them but you know we had a lockdown and you know touch wood we're not going to go in 
into a full second lockdown, but we're certainly, as we all know, in the middle of a second spike of COVID-19. So here's hoping those works can be completed. But I'm going to try and take the positive out of this, Brian, that actually more and more local authorities are understanding the importance of doing these remedial works and the maintenance. So I know you've got something to add to this. Yes, I'd like to explain a bit more about the Fire Door Safety Week itself, Mark. It was launched back in 2013 in response to a legacy of fire door neglect. It's what's described as a mass market awareness campaign designed to increase public understanding of the vital role that fire doors do play in protecting both life and property. The campaign is expertly managed each year by the British Woodworking Federation and actively supported by a number of partners, Mark, among them the Home Office's National Fire Safety Campaign, the National Fire Chiefs Council and also the London Fire Brigade. The overriding objectives of Fire Door Safety Week each year which is an excellent initiative, are to raise awareness of the critical role of fire doors, drawing attention to specific issues such as poor installation and maintenance, encourage building owners and users alike to check the operation and condition of their fire doors, and also to report those that are not satisfactory, link together the initiatives of many organisations with common interests in the fire door and passive fire protection industries, and engage and educate people, helping the whole building industry and every property owner to understand the correct specification, supply, installation, operation, inspection and maintenance procedures for fire doors themselves. Commenting on the research findings of this year's project, Fire Door Safety Week's organisers also issued a statement, Mark. It reads as follows. It's clear that COVID-19 has understandably impacted on service delivery across a variety of sectors, but fires don't stop. With the UK lockdown period forcing many people to spend more time at home, those without fit-for-purpose fire doors have been put at risk. There's a need for continued and urgent focus on ensuring the safety of all building occupants, whether in local authority or privately rented accommodation, workplaces or other building types. The statement also adds, while we've focused upon local authority-owned and managed housing stock, we strongly suspect that our insight reflects the wider market. We hope that, through this year's Fire Door Safety Week, we can draw attention to these important issues and encourage all those with responsibility for fire doors to, to take urgent action across fire door maintenance, inspection and replacement. As I said, Mark, it's a great initiative and all of us here at Fire Safety Matters are fully supportive each and every year. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll come back to, to my thoughts on Fire Door Safety Week in, in a bit. But actually, we want to have a nice segue into another story relating to Fire Door Safety Week, Brian. So could you share that with us? Yes, this one's from Profab Access, Mark. Profab Access are a designer and manufacturer of riser doors and access panel solutions for ceilings, walls and partitions, of course. The company has raised awareness of the importance of compliant fire testing and certification as part of Fire Door Safety Week 2020. Following the release of the Hackett Report, amendments to the Building Regulations Approved Document Beyond Fire Safety, which you've mentioned, Mark, and more recently the issuing of the Draft Building Safety Bill, the adequate testing and corresponding certification of fire doors, including riser doors themselves, is being placed under ever-increasing scrutiny. As part of this year's campaign, Profab Access encouraged the industry to achieve complete compliance by specifying riser doors that have been rigorously fire-tested in both directions by an accredited third party and supplied with comprehensive certification. Due to the ambiguity and disparities between the guidelines outlined in BSEN 1634 and Annex B of approved document B2, some manufacturers may only conduct product assessments or physical fire testing from only one direction. However, Annex B of approved document B2, itself focused on buildings other than dwelling houses, stipulates that the requirement for fire doors is for test exposure from each side of the door separately, with the only stated exception being lift doors. As riser doors are not symmetrical either on the door or frame, Profab Access believes these types of fire doors should be subjected to fire testing from both directions, 
going above the guidance outlined in BSEN 1634 to ensure complete compliance with the legislation outlined in Annex B of approved document B2. This not only demonstrates a clear audit trail of due diligence that supports Dame Judith Hackett's golden thread of documentation with regard to the performance of a building's fire integrity, but also provides architects and specifiers alike with the confidence that the riser doors are supplied with the highest standards in fire testing. Mick Hill is the lead technical manager at ProFab Access. He's written for us before here on Fire Safety Matters. And on this particular issue, he's explained, professionals must be confident that riser doors they're specifying will not fail in the event of a fire. And this can only be achieved by choosing fire integrity products that have undergone extensive fire testing by an accredited third party. This provides architects with the confidence and assurance that they've demonstrated all reasonable measures to ensure the riser doors meet the current legal standards and will not fail in the event of a real fire event. During Fire Door Safety Week 2020, professionals had the opportunity to achieve the principles outlined in the Draft Building Safety Bill by confirming the riser doors they specify for upcoming projects deliver complete compliance. This also ensures the building will continue to provide the highest standards in fire safety throughout its entire life cycle. What are your thoughts on this one, Mark? Well, I think you've covered it in, in great detail there. Now, what I do want to add is my thoughts on Fire Door Safety Week. As you said, it's, it's a fantastic campaign. What you may not be aware of before you, you joined our company, when I launched the Safety and Health Excellence Awards, there is a category in there called campaign of the year and its first year a couple of years ago of the awards the she awards first year fire door safety week actually won campaign of the year and that's not an easy thing to do for a for a, a fire category to actually win something in the campaign because the judges weren't just Ian Moore and people like that it was a wider health and safety audience but the respect for what the British Woodworking Federation have done is is immense throughout the sector this really is a great campaign it, it was a runaway winner two years ago for campaign of the year and it really does bring that side of the fire safety industry together Brian and it has caught the imaginations and, and, and it goes from strength to strength each year of course, it's becoming more and more important in the wake of Grenfell and, and the focus is on there. But And it shouldn't take a tragedy to bring things more into focus. But British Woodworking Federation and Fire Door Safety Week have long banged this drum now. It's a great campaign. As you said, we completely support it. And, and do check out everyone that supported it. Just because that awareness week is over doesn't mean the campaign's over please do go on to fire door safety week's website and find out more about their aims and objectives and just make sure that your doors are properly compliant there's proper maintenance programs in place because it really really is essential way of um, protecting premises and people so you've seen today our news is really focused on upcoming legislative changes to do with the building safety bill we've touched on the fire safety bill a little bit and of course compliance and to do with uh, fire doors but this now neatly leads on to our regular recurring guest which is warren spencer as i always say warren has prosecuted more than 200 cases under the fire safety order more than any lawyer in the uk he's literally the most experienced person in this sector for prosecuting under the fire safety order now it's a little bit different what we're doing with warren this week we're actually quite excited to talk to you about a digital conference that we're doing with warren that's taking place on the 3rd of december this year so i won't spoil it now but i sat down with warren earlier today and here's what he had to say Morning, 
Warren. How are you? I'm very well, Mark. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Now, as promised last week, we have a bit of an announcement to tell everybody this week, which I'm really excited to share with people. So, obviously, Fire Safety Matters and and you, under the guise of your business, Blackhurst Bud Solicitors, uh, have teamed up for a digital conference that's coming up this year. Can you tell us a bit more about what it is and, and why we're doing it? Well, obviously, at this point in time, it's very difficult to create any kind of face-to-face events and uh, so discussions with yourself we thought we'd try and put something together online um, and really from a, a legal point of view and covering the legal aspects that are being raised with my practice uh, over the last 12 months um, uh, and this does it in fact appear to be a bit of a turning point for the industry uh, from a legal point of view what with the the new fire safety bill um, the Grenfell inquiry uh, the, the building safety bill, there's lots of things that are happening from um, both a, a legislative and an enforcement point of view. Uh, and I think um, December would be a good time to try and tie some of those uh, discussions together. So, yeah, this this morning digital conference that we're doing, which is effectively a three hour webinar is titled Legal Update, the New Fire Safety Bill. Now, it's not just you that's taking part in this. We've got some other great legal minds from the sector as well. Can you tell us a bit more about who's involved in this and what you'll be covering? Well, first and foremost, we've got Joseph Hart, who's a barrister who, as far as I'm aware, has done probably the most Crown Court cases involving the fire safety order. Uh, is a barrister I've used uh, pretty much since I started dealing with the, with fire safety matters, uh, and um, he he will be discussing sentencing and and um, how the courts now approach sentencing in fire safety cases, and, and that's an area which um, significantly affected by uh, Grenfell and the, and the way that the courts approach it. But, but there are other factors as well, and so uh, Joe will be able to take us through how the, um, the sentencing effectively takes place by, by a judge and in the magistrate's court. And what will you and James Aird be covering? And tell us a bit more about James. James Aird uh, works with our practice and he's, um, over the last 12 months, become significantly involved in drafting clauses and contracts uh, which outline obligations, which um, I use that word because it's the word the fire safety order uses under Article 5, and the way in which uh, legal contracts uh, deal with the fire safety order. And, and what we found is in civil matters that quite simply the, the, the historical legal precedents don't deal with the fire safety order in the appropriate way. And so to protect the industry, we, we've been looking at outlining and limiting and explaining obligations of fire safety professionals within their contracts uh, for any piece of work that they do. And we'll be talking to James about how to limit um, exposure and culpability uh, and how to protect from, first of all, enforcement and limit enforcement as far as culpability is concerned. And, and also from a civil point of view, uh, to clarify obligations insofar as um, uh, responsibilities for premises. And Warren, what will you be covering? Is as I've often introduced you as having prosecuted more cases under the fire safety order than any other lawyer in the UK. What are you going to be covering in your presentation? Well, there, there are a number of issues that have been brought up with me over the, over the last 12 months. And certainly um, supported living is a very um, common theme for questionings and, and the, the, the confusion that surrounds the responsibilities in relation to the supported living sector. So I'll, I'll be touching upon that area and trying to clarify where the fire safety order applies in that regard. 
Uh, we will be covering the fire safety bill, touching upon the building safety bills and, and the uh, difficulties with the responsible person, persons with control, and the, and the building safety bill where an approved person and building inspectors um, and, and the responsibilities of all those people as is envisaged by the government. Um, so, th- so there is that. And as I say, generally, uh, what's been topical over the last few months and the developments that that are going to ensue as a result of the fire safety bill and the um, building safety bills. Well, before we tell people how they can get involved, Warren, obviously we talk about the fire safety order a lot. Now, the fire safety bill is having its first reading through Parliament, what's had that, and as the building safety bill. But for people that aren't sure on what the fire safety bill could mean, is it going to replace the fire safety order or is it going to make modifications to it what's the plan for the fire safety bill and why is learning about this important to our listeners and readers well it's not going to replace the fire safety order it's going to amend the fire safety order and the, the, the fire safety order is full of articles instead of sections but it's articles and articles within the fire safety order are going to be amended by the fire safety bill uh, and th- those amendments have been driven effectively by uh, the impact of Grenfell. And so there will be clarifications in what is covered as far as buildings are concerned um, and whether it covers external parts or doors and and things like that. You know, we're very proud of our relationship uh, with you. We're very lucky to have you as a guest on the podcast every episode. We partnered together because you and I both agree right now this is a real period of change for the industry. It's waited a long time for legislative updates. And now we've got two major pieces of legislation trying to be pushed through Parliament, as you've discussed. And obviously, as you just said to us, the Fire Safety Bill is going to make amendments to the Fire Safety Order. So for those of you that are wondering why should I attend this morning digital conference, from my perspective, it's it's very, very simple. We're lucky to have two leading fire safety lawyers, well, the leading fire safety lawyer in Warren giving a, a presentation. We've also got the leading fire safety barrister in the country taking part in this. So if you attend this three-hour conference which is done through your computer, much like you're listening on the podcast now, it will give you a vital insight into what's changing legislatively and legally, which does affect you and your workplace. So from our perspective, this is exactly the information that you need as practitioners to make sure you're up to date with the changing legal compliance that you're going to face. So Warren, if people want to get involved in this and and listen to what you guys are going to say, when's it taking place? Wednesday, 3rd of December in the morning. Um, you don't need to leave your home. You don't need to leave your office. It's something that you can log on to. If you, if you do miss it, uh, as I understand it, we'll be able to download it. But what we really need from it is for it to be interactive and for it to answer the questions that are being raised in the industry generally. Yeah, absolutely. As Warren said, it's the 3rd of December. It's 10am to 1pm. It's going to be a very interactive session. You'll be able to get your questions through and and there'll be plenty of time for us to um, get your questions to the guys. Apart from that, Warren is right. It will be available on demand. So it's £99 to attend this conference and you can register up via our website, which you go to fsmatters.com. Click on the webinars tab and right at the top there, you will see a section that says legal update to the new fire safety bill. If you go through that, it takes you to the Eventbrite page where you can register. And Warren's done many of these conferences face to face, but obviously due to COVID, we've got no choice but to do it digitally. And we're very lucky that we're being once again supported by the Institute of Fire Safety Managers. So if this content wasn't enough of a reason for you to get this legal advice. You'll also get CPD points 
for attending, thanks to IFSM. And that doesn't mean you have to be an IFSM member. You can be part of anybody that wants you to get CPD, and it can be allocated towards your your learning development there. So, as I said, it's £99 plus fat, and we've got a limited amount of places, so please do sign up as soon as you can. And you can do so by going to www fsmatters.com and click on the webinars tab and I'll take you straight through there. If you've got any questions, obviously you can always get in touch with me through LinkedIn. It's probably the easiest way to do it. But Warren, as we move away from that, and we obviously hope as many people join us as possible on the 3rd of December, if people want to find out more from you or about Blackhurst Bud, how can they get in touch with you? There's the Blackhurst Bud website and uh, Fire Safety Law website, and I'm also on LinkedIn and Twitter. So yeah, we'll keep promoting this conference, which is which has been said to happen on the 3rd of December. So please do check it out. And any questions, you know, contact myself or Warren through LinkedIn and we'll happily be in touch. Well, Warren, thanks for sharing that with us. And obviously you'll be back in a fortnight's time for another insight. But I uh, hope you have a great week and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Look forward to speaking to you then. on this edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast is James Jones, Managing Director at Fire Evacuation Alarm Systems Developer Vimpex and also a board member of the Fire Industry Association. James has served in his current role at Vimpex since 2013. Prior to that, he was a sales representative for the business before becoming sales and marketing manager. James gained an MBA from the University of Leeds in 2008 and also studied for a BSc degree in technology management at Oxford Brookes University. In conversation with Mark, James focuses on the government's plans for CE marking post-Brexit, the need to raise more awareness on the importance of training in the sector, and also how Vimpex as a company has adapted to meet the challenges posed by COVID-19. Morning, James. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. So we've known each other a while, and I'm very, very familiar with Vimpex. But for those of our listeners and readers of Fire Safety Matters, could you tell us a bit more about what Vimpex does and what your product offering is? Of course, yeah. So in the um, fire safety or life safety market, we're we're a pretty broad company, actually. Uh, started off just purely as a distributor of fire alarm sounders and associated uh, products. Um, then diversified into the rescue market, giving us a rescue division. And um, our business about, is about 60-40 between what we call evacuation and rescue. So evacuation would be, um, as I already said, fire alarm sounders, uh, electronic strobes, other fire safety um, and evacuation devices for fire alarm, commercial fire alarm systems. And the other side is distribution of rescue equipment. So this is anything from uh, mini jaws of life through to uh, helmets for fire services and ambulance um, services, the production of PPE, so gloves and fire rescue boots. So obviously this is a very diverse product line that you've got there, but can you share with us what's next in your product pipeline? Okay, so we've got a couple of very interesting things going on. Our business was founded on the distribution of fire alarm bells. Um, everybody likes to say that fire alarm, the fire alarm bell market is dying, but it's not our experience. We've got a very, very significant slice of the global market share on fire alarm bells. And we're currently reaching the end of a, an exciting development for us, which will see us launch our very own fire alarm bell onto the market rather than being the distributor for that. 
which will be assembled in our factory in Great Wakefield in Essex. And it will be um, within uh, a few months, we hope, the only dual-approved firearm bell on the market. And that's to say it will have ULEN and ULUS certification. So, so a truly global product uh, manufactured by us in, uh, in Essex. There'll be some innovative features with that. Um, it is possible to get excited by fire alarm bells, by the way. For, exa- for example, every single other fire alarm bell, you need to take the gong off to install it. Oh, one you won't. So it's going to be pretty popular with the installers as well. But what it, what it shows is that there's plenty of scope and plenty of legs in old technology. Um, and we're not, we're not afraid to um, employ that. So that's our, our next development on, on the evacuation side is our fire alarm bell. You know, there's a lot, lot of good stuff there, James. And obviously you're a proud family business. And as you said, yeah, you've been in the Essex region manufacturing for a long time and you've had staff that have been there a long time. And I've been down to your premises many times. So I guess a question I have for you is, how have you managed to cope as a business during COVID-19? Have you had to change how you've done things in any way shape or form of course we followed the government guidance and made sure that we've got plenty of hand washing stations um, alcohol gels and only this week of course we've got many of the office staff back uh, working at home i've got to say that i'm on the side of you've got to crack on in business and we're very very fortunate that you say we're a family run business well more family owned but run by some of the family and some really good senior managers and the rest of the staff and everybody's mucked in so we're we're making sure that we've got more people than perhaps normally would be trained on manufacturer and a set of manufacturing assembly so even if disaster happens we've got several people off with covid we should be able to get the guys in the warehouse in for example to be able to um, assemble products even as a fairly small business, we've managed to mobilise guys who would normally be in the office to be working from home. I think we've done a pretty slick job, job actually, and despite the phones being down today, um, uh, BT, not us, I think customers ringing in are really not going to notice much different in, in, difference in our performance as a supplier. So you've been in the fire sector a long time, and you're also a director of the Fire Industry Association. Can you tell us a bit more about what your role as the director of the FIA entails? Yeah, so I've been on the board now for, I think it's actually four years, um, initially as chairman of Fire East, which is the Fire Rescue Suppliers Association, one of the um, important councils within the FIA. But then I was voted to be director of the FIA um, in its own right, and I've sat in that, in, that, in that seat now for a year, I think it is. And I do it because... I think the FIA is a damn good organisation. It's one of the largest in Europe. Um, uh, the, the MD or the CEO in more won't shy away from uh, claiming that. And we are, I think, the, the largest in Europe. So we're pretty influential. Now, obviously, in contact with Brexit, are we in Europe or, or, or are we not? The, the fact of the matter is it, it is highly regarded as an organisation worldwide. With In context would be some of the, um, let's say, the, um, the former colonial uh, markets, the likes of Malaysia and Hong Kong and these places, where the FAI can help its members get into those markets very effectively, very effectively by its network. Training is one of those important things. So my portfolio, actually, on the FIA is to care deeply about and be responsible for the marketing, if you like, or the promotion of the training. So we've got a great marketing team. And this COVID pandemic has actually pushed the FIA hard to getting its training online. So we can deliver excellent training now anywhere in the world. It's in English only at the moment. But I think we've had clients from uh, from India, from Singapore, uh, from, from, from many parts of the world benefiting just as you would be if you were a UK FIA member. You wrote a great article for us not long ago, passionately talking about 
Brexit and how mm-hmm. you believe that we were stronger as part of the European Union rather than leaving it. But, you know, what one thing that when we've talked about it on a personal level, you're very much once once we've got past this now, you very much, as you said earlier, man, crack on and get on with it. And I know you've been very, very focused in terms of not just your FIA role, but the Vimpex role about what Brexit means for the sector. So can I ask you your thoughts on what the main challenges are going to be, in your opinion, for the fire sector in the wake of Brexit as we march closer and closer to the end of the year? Very similar to any other UK-based manufacturer or distribution business, of course. Uh, we're worried about the, um, the, the issue of uh, the imposition of duties and, uh, and other export paperwork that we're going to be hit with. And we've got our own plans for that. Um, like many other businesses, specifically with the fire market, would be the issue of UKCA mark and the imposition, apparent imposition of that by the government to suggest perhaps that only products that fall under the CPD, which is the Construction Product Directive, that are showing the UKCA mark will actually be appropriate for sale into the UK market, which we jointly, as the FIA, think is an absolutely crazy imposition um, at, at, at the point of Brexit and, of course, in context with the pandemic. And whilst, of course, we want to do everything we can to promote and protect and uh, and help UK-based businesses, we we need to carry on being an open market because, of course, what will happen, there'll just be reciprocal paperwork or bureaucracy put in the way of us exporting. And, you know, Vimpex, uh, 25% of our business goes to the EU, so we don't want to stop that. So we, we, we've recently lobbied, along with the BSOA, the British Security Industry Association, strongly lobbied to, I think, everybody's individual MPs to put a stop to this crazy UKCA thing and to ensure that we push the government to continue allowing CE-marked products and CPD um, approved products to, to 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 carry on being appropriate for the UK market. It, it's a, it's, a, it's another piece of bureaucracy that's just not required for our, for our sector. So, just in closing, if people want to find out more information about Vimpex, how can they find out more and get in touch with you? Okay, well, you can always uh, email me, and I'm always happy to be emailed personally to uh, James Jones at Vimpex and I'd be happy to ask answer any questions on Vimpex, but also. Um, uh, the FIA as well. I, I'm a passionate board member and a, and a very keen member. So um, either way, Vimpex or FIA, people can uh, email me uh, and ask anything they want to. And what's the website address that people can find more information on Vimpex? All the W's, vimpex.co.uk. Well, James, thanks for joining. It's always great to catch up with you. Okay, pleasure. Good to speak to you, Mark. brings us to the end of this latest edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Bob Bantock from the National Trust, Warren Spencer of Blackhurst Bud Solicitors, and also James Jones of Impex for their highly valued contributions. You can read more on the issues raised here and others by visiting the Fire Safety Matters website at www.fsmatters.com. We do hope you enjoy the content and found it useful. On that note, please do contact us if there are any particular themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag FSMPodcast. Do make sure you follow us on Twitter at FSMatters underscore MAG. As a reminder, the Fire Safety Matters podcast is live to view every fortnight on Wednesdays. Please do like and share the content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Fire Safety Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. All you need to do is enter the term Fire Safety Matters into your chosen platform search box. 
We'll see you next time. 